Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Agile for Humans, Episode 10. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me tonight, Ron Quartel, at Agile Agitator on Twitter. Agileagitator.blogspot.com is his blog site. He's an Agile coach and the creator of the new uh, Agile framework, Fast Agile. Ron, how are you doing tonight? Good, thanks. Very excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I'm excited that uh, Amitai Schleier, a friend of the show, good friend of mine, and I think a friend of yours as well, recommended you as a as a really interesting person to talk to. I'm glad he connected us, because after going through your blog site and the Fast Agile materials, there's a, a lot of really interesting stuff that you've been cooking up lately. Yeah, it's, it's, it's stuff that's been going on in my head for a while, and I finally kind of built up the courage and, and put it together and packaged it and uh, now trying to really market it and get some traction and some interest going. Perhaps we can start with the Fast Agile. Your site there is fast-agile.com. Interesting framework. Looks like it's really turning the uh, the delivery to up to 11. It's really, uh, looks like a leaned out, but perhaps a leaned out version of Scrum with some craftsmanship mixed back in. Is that a, yeah. a fair way to start? Um, yes, yeah. I've, I've kind of described it as, as a mix of uh, open space technology with uh, Scrum and, and XP and story mapping, essentially. If you, if you put all of those into a blender, then you're, you're going to come out with uh, fast agile. I'm really, I'm a fan of the open space technology. I've, this past year, I was able to go to a few conferences that used it. Really found it at first seemed odd, but when you experience it, incredibly powerful. How do you bring that into an agile framework? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you you started there because that was that was how the whole uh, idea started. So um, if it's okay with you, maybe I'll describe how how, how it started, and and it will um, kind of help fit the pieces together. So I was at the I was at the Scrum gathering down in New Orleans uh, last year. So not this year, the year before. And the last day it was a three day three day conference. And the last day of the conference was uh, an open space. And I'd been to open space before. Uh, open space, Agile Open Northwest, for instance. And 
several other conferences, so I was familiar with the with the format. But for some reason, uh, this time it just struck me at the end of the at the end of the um, where they populated the marketplace and we'd actually started going into the conference. I just sat there looking at the at the wall, uh, the marketplace wall, and, and all the sessions, and thought, you know, this is fantastic that we can get a room of eight hundred people, and within twenty minutes we've got uh, one day of conference. And this is a um, fantastic example of, of uh, organizing organization at scale. And it was like it was like the agile gods came and smacked me on the back of the head and and, and said, "Look at that! That's an example of of." organization at scale and and it struck me like hey why aren't we using this in in, in the agile world because um i mean safe is 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 uh fairly new and 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 less and and they're trying to uh trying to use control mechanisms to to um control organization at scale and here's a mechanism that works incredibly powerfully incredibly well which hasn't been tried. So that was the spark of the whole idea uh, at that conference to talk about that as a very idea. I said, hey, why don't we look at using open space technology to organize uh, work amongst a large group of developers? And I spoke to a handful of people there, and that was the very first spark of it. But it took me until uh, this year to really think it all through and put all the pieces together and, and formalize it into into fast. I had, it's gone through various names as well. I think the initial name was DOS, which stood for Dunbar's Open Space. And now uh, you'll see, <laughs> you'll see Dunbar's number come up later. I can talk about that. But essentially, that was the core of it is how do I build out an agile framework or, or methodology that, that harnesses the power of, of open space for self organization? So as as I think through that, because the market space is a, it is such a powerful tool, and it seems like that becomes almost your backlog that you're working your two day iterations off of, and I I can see how, the initial benefits as as I was reading through your very well documented site, you know first of all WIP is incredibly limited, right, which is a, a great benefit of such a time box, uh, but you're also really, um ex you know, implicitly mandating mob programming. Yes. And so I, I was I was trying not to mandate uh, too much because I think that's part of the reason why uh, extreme programming has kind of fallen out of uh, favor in, in place of Scrum. That's, that's another topic. A passion of mine is uh, extreme programming and, and code craftsmanship. Um, so I was trying to work out how do I how do I build that in but not mandate it because I think that that's what kind of has uh, helped people move more towards Scrum than extreme programming because they're kind of put off by the mandate. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was uh, so. I was trying to work out how, how to build that in, but not build it in, but not but not mandate it. Uh, and and so I'm, I built it in as one of the core core values essentially. And you're right, it's it's uh, it's. Uh, Pair programming is one of the, the core um, practices within extreme programming. And, and you'll see I mentioned that several times through the website. Uh, but also, I love the concept of mob programming, of like turning the pair programming dial to 12, because I think pair programming, you're already at 11. So they discovered <laughs> right. a 12 on the dial and said, hey, let's go to mob programming. Now, you mentioned Dunbar's number, which I, uh, you know, as, as your site documents, it's a the suggested cognitive limit to the number of people that we can actually interact with. And I think the number is 150, if I'm recalling it correctly. Yeah. Now, have you seen Fast Agile scale up to 150 yet? Is this something that, from a, one perspective, open space conferences certainly scale larger than that? So I think that proves out the theory that, that it can go that high. But as far as a, a software development team, are you working in numbers up to 150 developers? Or are we still in this early stage of, of trying this out with, with smaller teams? Yes. So uh, FAST is not being done anywhere yet. So right now, FAST is a proposal uh, for an experiment. And so really, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for companies that are really cutting edge, that are open to experimentation. And really, you've got to be at the right point in your product lifecycle or project to say, hey, 
why don't we try this out for a month or two months? Because this could really be a game changer. Um, so I was reading the uh, book on, on Scrum and how Sutherland kind of managed to, to build Scrum out. And he, and he had a relationship with one of his clients. So he was, a, he was fortunate enough to do that. Um, I'm looking for that same kind of relationship. So uh, a client out there that says, you know what, nothing else is working. Why don't we try this? We've got nothing to lose. Uh, so the Dunbar's number, it's, it's a theoretical number. And based on the number of, of relationships that a person, a personal relationships that a person can hold. Um, and, you know, the core of agility is based on personal relationships um, and, and communication. So that's where I came up with 150. So the, the image in my head was this room of 150 developers um, coming Monday morning. So they turn up into what I've called the forum. So essentially the uh, open space area. And 150, up to 150 of them uh, come in there and, and they will form dynamic teams around, around uh, a backlog. Should I go through the uh, elevator pitch? I think that'd be great. Yeah. And I, but I, and then I'd like to come back to how. Uh, well, well, let's let's hold here for a second. Okay. So what you just described, though, is the first time I've heard of a framework actually embracing and amplifying self-organization. And yeah. I, I like that aspect of it quite a bit because you can still do Scrum with a with with a dictator PM, <laughs> and that yes. still is. Yes. That or or a dictator scrum master, which is certainly an anti pattern of, of of scrum master behavior. But if you're going to put, you know, X to 150 developers into a room with a marketplace and say form dynamic teams, I mean that really is as as self organizing as you can get. And that was one of the the initial things that I that kind of popped out in my mind as I was reading through this. That wow, this is the first time. This has been um, explicitly embraced, and I, I really liked that aspect of it. Yeah, but yeah, it's uh, because you know from 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 Scrum experience, you know, Scrum talks about self-organizing teams. You know, the best Scrum teams that you you get to see, or certainly that I've seen in in my life as an agile coach, are the ones that that are given the space to self-organize, and and unfortunately, that's rare. Because uh, more often than, than not, companies will do, uh, they'll say, okay, we're going to do Scrum, but their description of Scrum is essentially just taking a waterfall backlog and delivering it iteratively. Um, and they think that's Scrum because they're, they're doing all the meetings um, and they're, they're creating software iteratively and even demoing it. But that's not really... Uh, you know, that's just scratching the surface. The real power of Scrum is that that self-organizing team that, that says, hey, we'll pull work from the backlog, you know. Don't tell us what to do. Um, tell us what you want, and we'll, we'll be able to pull that. So understanding that, that that's the real underlying power uh, behind Scrum and being frustrated at how, how that's not really being taken up or how rarely that gets taken up. I really wanted to create a framework that – only allowed for self-organization. Uh, so you can't not um, have self-organization. You can't tell teams what to do. You can't tell anyone what to do. It's, it's a sheer pull system. Uh, and I think that will I think that will be the strength of fast. Yeah, it, it certainly shines through as you read through the the I don't want to say process, but as you as you read through the description of of the of the framework and how this is supposed to work out that those, the features of, well, I think what you've done is you've embraced individuals and interactions over processes and tools. And most frameworks don't do that. You know, if you look at a safe diagram, it's not, it's not the culmination of a, of a mindset of individuals and interactions. It is all process and all process and tools. And I think yeah. to a lesser extent, less and dad and, and all these other frameworks have, have taken that track. As you said, that's control systems. Mm -hmm. Control systems require process tools, heavy governance, those types of activities. Right. Individuals and interactions fall to the wayside. And what does shine through and what you've laid out here is uh, the individuals. And so that is a, it's, it's certainly inspiring I think you were you were about to go into your elevator pitch. I think that would help people because we've you know 
being agilists, we've jumped into some of the the fun parts. Yeah, we're talking about the fun bits, yeah. but maybe some some context with the with the elevator pitch would help uh, help people frame up these thoughts a little a little better. Yeah, the elevator pitch is uh, imagine this: 150 developers. Now, Fast does require uh, a certain office layout uh, for for us to be able to work, and it does require. Uh, uh, your team to be co-located. So I was, I was very keen on doing away with a lot of the nonsense around Agile. Like, um, well, how do we make distributed teams work? You know, how do we make offshore? You know, what if the testers are in one country and the developers are in another? And so coming from extreme programming background, in extreme programming, you all work core hours and you work, you come to work and you work together and that's how it is. So I said, all right, fast is going to be the same. You're going to have to have a, an office location that can, that can, um, that has the developers co-located. Now imagine there's 150 developers. Um, now these developers will show up on Monday, it's the first day of an iteration, and they'll show up into this uh, large area, like a, an open space area, which I'm, I'm calling the forum. And they sit there and, that, and a guy comes up, he's a project manager, kind of product owner guy, and behind him on the wall is a, a release map, which is essentially a story map, which represents the entire uh, project that they're currently working on and all of the features and, and stories associated with it. And he says, okay, who's got, who's got working software from the last iteration that they can show us? And then someone will get up and they'll do a demonstration. The product owner goes, yep, that's great. Mark that off as done on the story map. He goes, well, someone will get up. And they'll show some working software. And he goes, yep, that looks, uh, that looks good. That's what I asked for. But now I'm seeing it. You know what? I'm going to want some changes. Here's what I'd like. I, can you move that to the left? And I want this to spin to the right and be green instead of yellow. And uh, who knows? Whatever the product owner does. So he'll create another storage to get up on the wall. Someone else gets up. They'll show some working software. And he goes, what? That's ridiculous. You guys, you guys totally missed the boat. Why didn't you come and ask me? That's not what I wanted. What I wanted was this, bang, 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 not done. So that story goes back on the wall. Now, the, the reason that we're, we're demonstrating working software to the entire tribe is because the entire tribe now understands the state of the current system. So by the end of that session of, of working software from last iteration, those 150 developers all understand of the state of the current working system, what the other teams have done, and what the product owner liked, what they didn't like. Now, the product owner... At this point, I say, all right, here's, he might do some reclarification, and it's a very rah-rah meeting, so this guy's got to be dynamic. He's got to be a, like a real true leader because he's, he's talking to his troops, right? He, and, and really, it's about alignment, making sure everyone understands what we're trying to build. And so he'll say, look, these are my priorities. This is what I'd like to see. And these are just kind of guidelines. And so that's the first stage. So now everyone's in sync as to where, what the current state of the software is. The next stage is, is essentially the marketplace um, where we say go. So Joe, he's, he's really interested in working on, on one story, one aspect of it. He's particularly passionate about it. So he'll jump up and he'll grab that st uh, story. He'll go into the center of the, of the circle and say, yeah, uh, today I'm going to be working on this story. Um, and here's how I'm going to be doing it. And here's why I'm passionate about it. I'm going to be in room A. And so he, pop, he puts his story up on room A. Someone else gets up. And they may not even pick a story. They'll say, you know, we're working uh, on a story last week. There's a big major refactoring that we, we found in there. Uh, we, we got to start on it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really want to get in there and continue that. Here's what the refactoring is around, blah, 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 blah. So I'm going to be in room B. Someone else might get up and say, I'm thinking of creating a new component because I'm noticing that the architecture is moving in this direction. I think if we pull out this structure here, which will handle this API that can communicate over there. Uh, so that's what I'm going to be doing. I'll be over in room C. So I've, I've just given three different examples there of someone doing refactoring, so they didn't pull anything off the wall. Someone creating a component, so they didn't pull anything off the wall. And then someone actually pulling something off the wall. So this is how fast handles uh, component versus feature teams because I think that's always been a struggle. Um, so, this is a, so this is three guys. Someone else will grab another story. Someone else grabs another story. So now the number of development rooms that you've got in your facilities, and as a rule of thumb, I said, whatever your tribe size is, divided by 10, that's how many development rooms you've got. So they become the places in your marketplace. Whoever gets there first gets there first, and that's, that's the stories that will get worked on in that sprint. 
uh, own that iteration. Now, I've pegged two-day iterations, and I'll talk about that later, but you don't have to run with two-day. You might find a week runs better. But I've, I've especially gone small, which is one of the, the agile um, principles, you know, that we, we try to aim for shorter iteration rates. So I said, well, how short can I get it? And I'm, I'm aiming for two days. So before you start in your two-day iteration, you look up at the marketplace, uh, at the wall there, at the different slots, and you say, you know what, our story is going to clash with the guys over in room A. So before we start, let's go over and talk to them, and let's have an architectural discussion to make sure that we're all in alignment. So this is how we handle architect discussions, just in time, just enough. Um, and and uh, if you're interested, so I might be over in room C, but I'm like, you know what, I'm going to do important stuff, so I'll go join in there, finish the discussion, and then go back to my other room, room C. So it's it's using a lot of the principles of, of uh, open space, like the law of two feet and the right conversations will happen at the right time. So it's almost like metaphysical principles, but because I've seen them work in open space, my, my I feel that this is going to work here. And this is how we handle then um, the architectural discussions. And this is how the architecture can, can grow and emerge uh, with a, a kind of just-in-time nature. Something that stands out there, it seems like you're definitely slicing work into very small pieces. And so I'm wondering if you could go into, I, I think a, a question that's going to flare up very quickly is, well, if we're going to work in two-day, three-day, four-day, very short iterations, the work has to be small. Yeah. And so what is your, what is your estimation process? What, have you, what is your slicing heuristic? Yeah. Uh, what is the mechanism or the process to get the story small and, and then confirm that it does fit in within uh, that time box? Right. That's a great question. So the tribe, the tribe will do everything. So me as a product owner, all I'm going to, I'm going to, my initial population of, of the, the release map or story map is just features. If I'm interested in working on a feature, I'll say, hey, I'm going to work on this feature. My dynamic team will come and join me in a room. There might be 10 of us. There might be 20 of us. There might be two of us. So then the next question is, all right, we're going to work on this feature. We're not going to get the whole feature done in two days. What can we get done in two days? So the next step is, well, okay, let's break this feature down. So we'll break the feature down into stories or I dislike this word a lot, but I'll say it, into epics. We'll break it down into <laughs> epics and stories. Uh, and we'll break it down enough to the point where we've identified something of value that we can deliver uh, in two days. And and the rest of uh, whatever else we've broken down, we're just going to stick back on this on the story map, uh, the release wall, and we're going to uh, deliver. We're going to work on 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 the, the small chunk that we did manage to pull off. So again, the the breaking down of the storage is uh, follows that just in time pattern. If I'm interested in working something and it isn't broken down then the first thing we've got to do is break it down. I, I was also noting that as part of the estimation or the slicing is that you, you've embraced the, the no estimates mm -hmm. mentality towards estimating work. And I'm wondering if you could, because that's been a hot topic on the podcast. We've, been, we've had conversations with you know, George Dinwiddie, Neil Killick, J.B. Rainsberger, a lot of the, the no estimates advocates. Uh, we brought Tim Ottinger in and uh, Amitai and, and Zach Boniker, some of the, you know, the, the, the more moderate to more extreme um, in future episodes, we've even spoken with Woody Zool about this as well. Yeah. What is your take on no estimates? How does it fit into an open space centric framework? And what is it, what is it adding to, to the, the ability to deliver the software within your framework? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I, I, I was struggling with, with that question as to how to make fast palatable to companies that are currently used to, you know, the concept of velocity and, and story points. So for, uh, a big question around fast is how to solve a lot of the, the pain points around Agile right now. And that's a big one. You know, velocity and story points, uh, there's something very distasteful in there. And, and, you know, no estimates is a really good experiment at, at trying to solve, solve that. So the way I've worded it is that, that fast can run in two modes. So essentially the no estimates mode, which is as, as described by Woody's all, you can run uh, like that. Or there is, I've come up with like a lightweight uh, estimation process. And, and the purpose really, you know, when I, when I get talking to people about estimation, they'll say, well, why do we need estimation? 
and and the answer that comes back is, well, before I start on a feature, I need to have a, a rough sizing of whether it's worth my while or not as, as a product owner or product manager. So they need this like large size uh, estimation. And and so that, the inspiration came from from uh, listening to uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, and then uh, later, The Wisdom of Crowds. Uh, that there's a way to estimate with very, very good accuracy fairly quickly. And so I've kind of built that into FAST. I've called it FAST estimation. Now, in FAST, we only ever estimate on the feature level. So as a product owner or project manager, so in the in the that FAST meeting, the project that's, manager... That's good. Yeah. That's good, that's good branding right there, Ron. It is, I like right? that. Every, everything's FAST. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> so the, the manager will say, hey, I, I need a, an estimate on this feature. And we'll ask the room. We'll say, all right, on the count of three, give me your estimate in, in how many man days. And, and I've gone back to man days, which kind of it, it, it's shock and horror to a lot of people. But I can go into why. That's blasphemy. I know, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, how many how many mandates is this feature? And on the count of three, you give me your estimate, and we can say you know round it to the nearest twenty, and now it's fifty. Give me your estimate, and I just take the average of the room, and there it is. There's my number. So in in like minutes, I can I can estimate the size of the feature. Is it accurate? It's probably just as accurate as anything else. So let's try and find sure. something super quick and super easy. So I can I can estimate the entire backlog, and I've got some kind of indication of, of how big my my uh, backlog is, and I can repeat that process as needed to to kind of gain uh, more insight as we move through. So it's it's again it's nothing new. It's not a new way of estimating, but it doesn't seem to have been uh, used in the agile world like we're now using poker and modified ancient sequences of numbers and. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all sorts of other other things. So it's like, hey, well, you know, let's try this. You mentioned, and I'm wondering if this is the need that that fast is is filling for you. But you mentioned that there are some pain points in agile, and you seem, and maybe I'm reading a little too much into it, but you seem very passionate around those pain points. And I'm wondering if you could go into a few of those and maybe elaborate on if fast is really meant to address those directly because it seems like there are some some very serious issues in the current agile world and, and the way that agile's been implemented that are that are troubling to you yes yeah that's that's um yeah you've read that well for a long time uh, you know as a as an agile coach it just feels like uh, an uphill battle so scrum is a great framework but it seems seems to lend itself to be misapplied very easily so my job as an Agile coach was to go in and fix Scrum uh, over and over and over again. And, and it seems to be broken in the same way where, you know, we, we're misunderstanding that it's a poor model. You know, they've been misunderstanding, uh, you know, that, that it is self-organization. They're misunderstanding that the teams are telling, are working out what to do, that they're the real heart and brains of it. Treating devs as, as uh, chess, like horns on a, on a, uh, a chessboard. Which is so disheartening. Like, oh, you know what? We, we're going to change the team. So I'm going to move these people over there and those people there. And, and we're going to be using these processes on them. So I hear this from managers all the time. And that was disheartening. It's like, you don't get it. You guys just don't get it. You're going to take it right back to square one in your, in your scrum rollout. So I really, how do we get around this continual kind of classic pitfalls? So particularly around self-organization. So my... My passion for for the ad, for agile comes from my early history as a, as an extreme programmer. So that was my introduction to agile. I worked with uh, I was fortunate enough to work with a extreme programming team for um, about ten years, and we we got it. Like we were a, a pool model. We were self organized. We were contained. And what we did inside that team, that's what we did. So we we did pair programming. We're free to, to do to learn and study technical excellent practices, and I was ever since then I've been looking to really recreate that same feeling of agility, and I haven't found it in in the Scrum world that I've been involved with. Uh, not to say it's not possible; I've seen glimpses of it, but there's something kind of not working there. So this is my 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 goal of creating a system that won't lend itself to be so misapplied, uh, particularly around 
uh, around self-organization, which we, we've spoken about at, at great length. But yeah, the whole estimation, which we've spoken about, estimation, stories, and the whole the whole lingo as well. Like it's it's, it's almost like the cookie cutter. Guam has become this cookie cutter system where I, I was having a conversation at at uh, at the last guy I'm grabbing with a guy. And he comes up and he says, you know, so, so the, the topic I was talking about was uh, focus and, and how, you know, how being focused is going to help you. And I gave real examples of, of how to focus the team. And at the end of the talk, he came up because, you know, my, my team are, they're, they're just spending so long in the meetings. I'm like, well, which meetings? Good. Well, you know, at, at planning. I'm like, well, what are they doing in planning? He goes, well, they spend so long at, and during tasking. I'm like, well, what? What's taking them so long? He goes, well, they they're trying to work out the the sizes. And I said, well, why don't you just stop sizing? <laughs> he goes, <laughs> he goes, but then, but then, how will we know if the work's going to get done? I'm like, well, why don't you trust the team and ask them, hey, come and tell me if you do think your work's not going to get done. He goes, yeah, but 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 management will need the burn down. I'm like, well, look, Scrum don't even have the burn down chart as one of their their artifacts anymore. Stop doing the burn down chart, <laughs> and I could right. just see this guy like start to glaze over. But these these are conversations that happen over and over and over and over and over again in Scrum, and I'm like, you know, I'm 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 tired of these conversations. I need a system that doesn't lend itself for this stuff to happen over and over again. Yeah, the difficulty of Scrum and, and these conversations among Agile coaches at many of the conferences, these happen over and over and over, where we hear about instances where they've used Scrum to deceive themselves. Mm. So they've they've put in, you know, they do the stand-up meeting, they're checking all the boxes, they had the planning meeting, but it's still iterative, incremental delivery. It's not Scrum, kind of like what you mentioned before. Yeah. And, and all of the, the pain points, so Scrum is great for showing you where your systems of work are inefficient or ineffective. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful for that. Mm-hmm. How you decide to modify Scrum to either address it or, or cover it up, that's where the deception comes in. You know, once you start changing Scrum practices because you found something that made everyone uncomfortable, you've lost the benefit. And it's just way too easy to do that, especially when and maybe we'll get into this in a little bit, when all it takes to be a scrum master is a two-day class. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're, you're certified and you're on a team and you're the authority. And, and how do you know any better than to go along with what your management is saying? And sometimes you, I mean, of course, the, you're going to end up doing what, what, you're, you're, what you're directed, but the, even the ability to conjure up logical arguments back is is often missing if all you've done is a two-day course. And and I, I certainly see that that struggle and that stress in many agile coaches who are out in the field. And and this convers these types of conversations that you're talking about and some of the deceptions that that companies go through, I think it's just common across the industry. Yes, exactly. And it it's uh it's disheartening. And so I've I've kind of kept a tight lip about it because uh out of respect for my my uh, previous employer. But but now I'm independent. I'm kind of uh able to to be true to to, to myself and 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 to to verbalize these things out loud. And then that's kind of why I waited to to launch fast as as an independent because uh you know, I didn't, I didn't want to I didn't want to taint in any of uh, other people's opinions, and and you know everyone's entitled to their opinion and and, um, and their ways of, of of making money. So, but I I now need to be true to myself, and I was very much inspired by uh, Tobias Meyer. So I read uh, his book, The People's Scrum. I, I've never read a book that is so in alignment with my way of thinking. I'm like. Wow, yeah, I could I could have written this book. This is, this is incredible. And I was inspired that he was he was courageous enough to to be honest and, and truthful himself to say, you know what, I'm 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 walking away from uh, this nonsense of of certification. And this is a, a guy who who's a CST and walked away from from the Scrum Alliance because of. of of what you described, like a two-day certification class. Yeah, and it, it didn't sit right with him, and, and, and it's not sitting right with me. And we can talk about that a little more in depth if, if you want to as well. But, uh, but it's certainly kind of – it's all part of the same picture of a, a lot of my frustrations around the agile world. And and I said, you know what, instead of moaning about it, I'm going to try and fix it. And that's why that's why I created Bob. Here's, here's my shot at trying to fix Agile. A common theme on, on this podcast, especially when you have people like Amitai who, who comes on regularly, 
is the idea of XP being foundational to Agile. And that's something that, that I embrace quite tightly. I know that uh, past guests like JB and, and Amitai believe that as well. And it was actually what we have a similar origin story with programming. As a, as a young developer, I was fortunate enough to get a copy of, of Kent Beck's Extreme Programming Explained, and I read it a hundred times, mm-hmm. loved the book. There's only, there's only good things in that book. And I was able to work in that way for a number of years. And it almost, it gives you a, almost a false perception of the programming industry, right? Because once you step out of that kind of team and you see the horrors that other teams are going through, it almost just, everything else is a letdown after an, after an, an amazing XP team. What if you can't get back to that? And it, uh, it's just so foundational to the craftsmanship of creating software. A number that I saw today, yeah. and I, since you are uh, very much, I think, a supporter of XP as much as... Um, Many of us are. When I saw on the Scrum Alliance uh, state of Scrum, I think the number was 16% of Scrum teams are using XP. And I thought to myself, how could this be possible? Yeah. How, and I'm, I'm hoping it's a flawed question. I'm hoping that there's some statistical imbalance that occurred that, that led to that kind of answer. But if that truly is the state of Scrum today... I think we might be in a little bit of trouble. You know, I would doubt that that number is correct, 16%. I'd say it was a lot lower than that. And in fact, if you looked at the, um, uh, who did it, the, the State of Agile survey, that number is, is lower than that. Uh, in fact, I'm speaking at, at Agile 2015 uh, next month on, on the topic of uh, Scrum plus uh, extreme programming for hyper-productivity. So it's essentially saying, look, if you want to, if you want to go fast and you're doing scrum and you want to go fast, which is all companies seem to care about. So I've stopped trying to talk about quality because companies that are doing scrum don't care about quality. I've come to realize they'll pay lip service to it, but you can't, they, you can say, Hey, I can come in and I can improve your quality and they, they won't pay for that. But if you can come in and say, Hey, I can make you go three times faster, then, then you've, you've tweaked their interest. So I started talking about XP. In terms of, hey, if you want to go fast, then you really need to do extreme programming. So the, the topic I'm talking about is uh, Scrum plus XP for hyper-productivity. And I've actually pulled in, yeah, some of those statistics from, um, oh, who did that? Who did that survey? It's, um, it's not. It's the version, is it version, version one, one, State of Agile? That's yep. it. Yeah. Yeah. So they got some, some numbers in there and, and I've got a slide that, that kind of shows what's currently happening. And, and, um, it's a great uh, if if anyone's listening and, and comes along to the session. So the session is 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 around okay. XP is going to help you go faster, but really the the main problem with XP is how to sell it to to a team and to a manager. And I've come up with this fantastic little exercise. It takes about twenty minutes, um, where you, you run through this uh, exercise. It's kind of a game. It's kind of a demonstration exercise. And and at the end of it, I've I've never had it fail yet for. The aha moment where a manager goes, okay, you guys, you need to do XP. (laughs) (laughs) And the team saying, yes, finally, we're allowed to, we're allowed to do XP. So yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm excited to be sharing that with more people. But yeah, that, that, um, yeah, that number is, is low. It's, it's incredibly low and it's, it is, uh, disheartening. Um, and I'm hoping to, to kind of, work on that a bit with, with this uh, exercise in my session and to, to share it with more people. Yeah, it, it's an important topic. It's one that I, I wish I could see that talk. I, I won't be at the at the big conference this year, but uh, I'm hoping that it's either recorded or it's online or some slides are available soon because it's one of those topics that are near and dear to my heart and to this podcast. There is a, a very big XP streak uh, within the many of the, the hosts on the show and I, it's like I said, it, it's foundational. I don't know how you can do agile without an XP foundation. And I've, I've yet to hear anyone make the argument that you should even try it. So, but then you see the numbers and apparently a lot of people are trying it. I don't think it's working out well, especially if you look at the state of, of scrum teams today. So Scrum was designed to be rolled out quickly, and that's why they left extreme programming out, what they call the XP practices out. So it's designed to be rolled out in two days. Um, and I think you can actually can roll out Scrum in two days. I don't know if it would be a very particularly good version of Scrum, but you, you could get a team doing Scrum. Now, extreme programming 
I think it's going to take a team about six months. And really, to do extreme programming, there's a role in there called the XP coach. And that's a guy who, uh, a person who, who kind of knows what extreme programming looks like and what the practices are. And you need a, an XP coach to work with. There aren't many XP coaches out there. That, you know, we're like hen's teeth. Uh, and yet, I'm not getting called up <laughs> and saying, hey, <laughs> can you come and help us? So the challenge is to, to really, if you're going to do extreme programming correctly, you're going to need an XP coach and you're going to need them to work with you for, for about six months. So I know um, Jim, James Shaw um, is a fantastic example of, a, of a, an XP coach. And you, if you look on his website, the, the, the training that he offers, he will come in and work with the team for six months because that's roughly what it takes. Yeah, I think that's, you know, part of the barrier to, to XP uh, in, uh, you know, you can't roll it out quickly. But as you said, it's really, it's the heart of Agile. I've, in my last 15 years, I've, I've worked with three high-performance teams. Of all the teams I've seen, I've only ever seen three high-performing, what, what I'd call high-performing. They're all doing extreme programming. So, you know, I've yet to see uh, a team that wasn't doing extreme programming be high-performing. I, I was just going to say, it makes me wish that we could talk uh, Kent Beck and Ron Jeffries into rebooting the Extreme Programming Explained book and, and come out with a 2015-2016 a version because I actually believe that the workforce has changed since the 90s and, and early 2000s. I, I think that the whether they call it the millennial movement or whatever label you want to put on it, yeah. workers are expecting to be able to do quality work now. Yeah. It's no longer enough to just be paid, show up, and go home. Uh-huh. XP could have a renaissance in this new environment if it were... It makes Like I said, I wish the book had come out now. If you could reboot it and, and then discuss how the practices have evolved since then. Right. You know, pair programming has moved to mob programming. Yes. You know, certain estimation techniques have moved to no estimates. Mm -hmm. You know, refactoring, you know, you have all these these different frameworks and methods and, you know, you have behavior-driven development, test-driven development, all these different things that have come along since that you could almost package into a reboot of the practices and, and the theory and, and just hope for a renaissance. But I, I've not heard much of, uh, effort or interest in that so far well i've got um that's actually my next secret project <laughs> <laughs> well it's not actually to, to rewrite that book or anything like that but yeah, i'm not, not sure how much to say right now because it, it, it's it's my next project i'll be working on next year which i think will address uh address that problem so as you can can, can tell I'm, I, I i get frustrated with things and i sit with that frustration until something kind of pops out and went and I'll go, right, I think, you know, I'm tired of moaning about it. Let, let's try and fix it. So I've got, I've got a, uh, something that, that I think might, might be a fix. And let's, let's talk about that offline. And, and if it sounds of interest to you, well, we can do another session on, on that. But, yeah, watch this space. <laughs> it just seems like there is this gap. And I, I hope that we'll talk offline that that project is looking at filling that gap because it – you know, Ron Jeffries just came out with a new book, but it's not necessarily focused around that that XP topic. And it, the topic has just gone away. You do still see interest in Europe, though. I have noticed that the conferences are still going, and yeah. over the pond, over the pond, they they love it. Yeah. Uh, but over here, I think you're right. In North America, the the practice just kind of went away. Yeah, I've been I've been asking a lot of people about that. Uh, I've been meaning to write a blog. Like, why? Why has extreme programming become such a dirty word in the in the USA? And and yet it's still a thriving practice, and people are proud to call themselves uh, extreme programmers in 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 Europe. And the my well, you can probably tell from my accent, I've, I lived in, in England for for a while. That's where I, I was introduced to extreme programming. And uh, in fact, I'm heading back there in in uh, August, and I noticed that uh, the Extreme Tuesday Club. Is still up and running, and every Tuesday these guys meet in London. Uh, they're extreme programmers. They're proud to call themselves extreme programmers, and they talk about their craft. I think that's that's fantastic. I have to to link in with with uh, back in with them while I'm over there. Yeah, and I just found your your slide on on the XP usage, and it looks like out of the 2013 survey. Uh-huh. Out of the total of Scrum Agile implementations reported, 15% are doing Scrum and XP, 
of the entire population sample, 1% yeah. are doing just XP. Yeah. Uh, mind-blowing. Right. Yeah, given so. how, how profoundly effective it is, it is mind-blowing. And it, it's kind of indicative of the state the, uh, uh, the Agile is, is, is in right now. You know, I call it the state of mediocrity uh, that, they're, that we're in. I want, I want to get us out of it. Well, certainly the USA. It's something, something's really got to change. There certainly is some, some, some truth to that, that it, it has uh, happened to move into that state of uh, mediocrity. And I, I've, there's been a lot of conversations on this podcast, on other podcasts. Some people wonder if it's the move into the enterprise that was the beginning of the end or, or when it was still small companies, small teams doing powerful things. If it was at that point, if that was the last moment of purity and then it, you know, got diluted in the, in the corporate world and the red tape and, and all those politics. But I think there's something deeper to it. And if I, if I, if I knew the answer, I'd, I'd go and, and come up with a certification and make a bucket of money. But <laughs> well, and maybe talking of certification, maybe that's I think, I well, think, and that's what I think you hit no, the nail ahead. on the head there. And, and so my, my first hunch as to, to the beginning of the fall, I've called it came, um, I was watching a video of, of uh, Uncle Bob Martin talking about the the land that Scrum forgot, and it was uh, I think it was a keynote into into if you if you look it up you'll find that the YouTube video, the land that Scrum forgot, and he talks there about the beginning of the end, and it was at the point where Scrum came up with with the certification level. This is his his theory, and when that happened, he that opened Agile up to the world of, of the project managers. And of course, the project managers goes into the world of the enterprise and old school management thinking, which is very hard to change. So that was when Agile was diluted down into, uh, that was the beginning of the dilution, I guess, was the creation of this Mickey Mouse certification. <laughs> and yeah, okay, that is a little harsh, but you know, I don't have a problem with giving someone a certificate saying that they've done the class. And I think the CSM class is incredibly value, valuable. I like the content a lot. And sure, give someone a certificate saying, hey, they've sat this class. But to certify someone is very different than giving someone a certificate saying you've sat a class. To certify, I think, I think we've made a mockery of the word by you know, saying, "Hey, sit my sit my class, and then fall off a log, and and I will now give you, I will now certify you as as some kind of with some sort of expertise." And I think that's wrong. Um, I think Tobias Meyer was was right to call it out, and and I think more people should start calling it out. Um, I put a hashtag on on Twitter called "Say No to Agile Certification," and I've started being a bit more vocal about it. You know, maybe that's this is part of, of, of the healing that needs to happen. Is that you know we start calling nonsense out and start saying no to the things that are in fact damaging to to the agile world. And I think that's one of them, like having these uh, ridiculous certifications. I did notice that most of the certifications you did label that way, but there was one that you found value in, at least from the, the blog post, which I'll link to in the show notes, and that was the CST. The CSC and the CST are, you know, the, the people that get those certifications are, they've earned them. So they're not, now whilst they've earned them, I, I, I still question the, the value of them. So, um, and that's a, that's a deeper conversation. But this, I mean, the CST, I, I still see value in, in uh, certifying a trainer because, um, the ability to train effectively, and not everyone has that. So if I'm, if I have a message that I want to get out to, to the world and to the public, and I, I know I can only do that by leveraging other people, then I want to have the ability to, to say who I trust with giving that message out. So a certification program around, around doing that. So the CST is an example of that. So, yeah, I think those guys are very well trained uh, in what they do, and they do a great job of it. I think the certifications they hand out are, are a little more questionable, and that makes me sad. <laughs> but yeah, I, and that's why I say, you know, that there is value in that. Not that I'm interested in, in, in chasing uh, or, or, or pursuing that. Um, so I, I did entertain that thought for a while. But um, I'm a, for instance, I'm a Microsoft certified trainer, and. You know, that took training and, and uh, 
testing to, to be able to get that. Well, Ron, we're coming up on our time box, and I, I want to be respectful of your time. But I, I did want to just say I'm fascinated by FAST. I think this is a, it's an intriguing framework. You've turned up the best of Agile up to 12, and you've emphasized the people. And it's the first time I've really seen a framework make the individuals and interactions shine. And so I really do appreciate that. And I'm, I'm really excited to see uh, the, the initial experiments and how this works out. And I, just, I think it's great that you're putting the emphasis and the spotlight back on the things that make agility actually work. So I think it really is a great thing. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Glad it shines through. Yeah. And at this point, I'd, if there's anything that you'd like to plug, if people would like to follow up with you about FAST uh, or about certifications or some of the, the other topics we went through, how can they reach you? What's the best way to, to continue the conversation with you? Um, yeah, so you mentioned my Twitter handle there. Uh, if you want to email me, then there's a, there's a link at the bottom of the of the Fast Agile website. So it's fast-agile.com. There's a contact us uh, link there, which uh, there's an email address you can you can reach me now. Excellent. And as you mentioned, you will be speaking at Agile 2015 on Scrum and XP. If you're out there, it's foundational to agility. So if you can make that talk, I think it's going to be very educational and important, the workshop, uh, convincing management and, and developers to, to embrace XP. That's an amazing 20-minute exercise. I'd, I'd love to see it sometime. But if you are at the big conference, please you know, make a point to, to attend Ron's talk. It's, it's an important piece of your, your Agile transformation. And that's it for tonight. We appreciate you listening to this episode and all the other episodes in the archives at AgileAnswerMan.com. If you have a question, please feel free to reach out at Ryan Ripley on Twitter or use the contact page on AgileAnswerMan.com. Thank you again for listening and have a great night. Hey, everybody. It's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you. Todd, myself, and Will Seeley have put together an evidence-based leadership course. Now, this one's really exciting for us. As you all know, Todd and I and Will, we're all huge on evidence-based management. We think it is the next big innovation in the Agile space. But what we've noticed is the application at multiple levels has been troubling, at least for certain organizations. And what we want to do is make it simpler. And so evidence-based leadership is the course to come to if you want to get immersed into data-driven decision-making, the ability to actually validate that value is being delivered, to look at your ability to innovate and to deliver to the marketplace, and to actually identify and act on opportunities in the market that you may not know about. And say closing that satisfaction gap with your customers, finding new channels, and using data to drive those decisions rather than guesses, hunches, and conjecture. And so we want you to join this course. We've got multiple offerings coming up this year. The link is simple. It's agileforhumans.com slash EBL course. Jump in there. Use the code agile4humans, the number four, and you can take uh, 15% off the price of the class. So not only is it a new offering that we've discounted already, go ahead and take another 15% off because you're a valued listener. We can't wait to see you there.